It's high crimes and misdemeanors. There was no high crime and there was no misdemeanor. So how do you impeach based on that? The opinion says that the Constitution requires a process other than the criminal justice system to formally accuse a sitting president of wrongdoing. It's not about politics, it's about patriotism. It's an existential threat, this administration, to our democracy in terms of our Constitution. We cannot afford to allow our president to be above the law. Hello, welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Yasha Monk. I've been thinking a lot about where we are at at this stage in the Trump presidency. We are two and a half years into his hopefully first and last term in office. And it strikes me that a lot of the most pessimistic predictions have come true. The Department of Justice at this point is under pretty firm control of partisan hacks who make quite clear that they are just interested in being personal lawyers to the president rather than enforcers of the rules from the Constitution of the United States. I am personally somewhat skeptical about the usefulness of impeachment proceedings, not because I don't think they are warranted given the actions of Donald Trump, but because it is so depressingly evident that they would fail to reach a two-thirds majority in the Senate because the Republican Party has also become a partisan tool of the president of the United States. And so all of the old ways in which our institutions, our political parties, the whole machinery of a separation of powers was supposed to protect us from authoritarian ambitions of a president seem to a remarkable extent to be failing. And it makes it very hard to know what we can do day in, day out to protect our democratic rules, institutions, and norms. We do have an election coming up in 2020, and that is one obvious remedy. But I'm finding myself more and more despairing about the other ones. All we can do, I think, is to plaster over the wound, to delay and stench the flood until we are hopefully able to place somebody with a real commitment to our democratic institutions in the White House again. My guest today is Christy Parker. She has had a very long career in the Department of Justice, pursuing civil rights cases, among others, and she now serves as counsel at Protect Democracy, a wonderful organization trying to protect liberal democracy against authoritarian populism, where I, too, am involved as a senior advisor. I'll be back with Christy in just a moment. Nothing changes from the Mueller report. There was insufficient evidence, and therefore, in our country, a person is innocent. The case is closed. Thank you. I was actually sticking up for sleepy Joe Biden while on foreign soil. Kim Jong-un called him a low-IQ idiot, and many other things. Whereas I related the quote of Chairman Kim as a much softer low IQ individual who could possibly be upset with that. North Korea fired off some small weapons, which disturbed some of my people and others, but not me. I have confidence that Chairman Kim will keep his promise to me and also smiled when he called Swamp Man Joe Biden a low IQ individual. And worse, Perhaps that's sending me a signal. 
storms overnight across Ohio and many other states were very dangerous and damaging. My team continues to update me with reports from emergency managers in the states affected. Listen to your local officials and be resilient. We are with you. Republicans cannot allow themselves to again lose the Senate seat in the great state of Alabama. This time, it will be for six years, not just for two. I have nothing against Roy Moore, and unlike many other Republican leaders, wanted him to win. But he didn't. And probably won't. Welcome to Trumpcast, Christy. Thank you so much for having me. So listen, what you do at Protect Democracy is a lot of legal work to try to protect American democracy against authoritarian populists. What does that look like? How do you try to use legal tools in order to stand up to, for example, power grabs by somebody like Donald Trump? Well, let me say first that Protect Democracy does not use solely legal tools to go after the authoritarian abuses by the Trump administration, but we do do a significant amount of legal work. And I think one of the reasons why that is, is the United States is based on a system of laws. We are a government of laws, not of people. Our founding document is our constitution. And I think as Americans, we're all brought up to see the law and the courts as the main tool that we use in order to fight back against things that are unjust. It really is the people's tool to secure our own rights. And when you have a situation like we have now, where you have a person who really doesn't seem to believe in that system of laws, one of the first avenues you would always seek to explore for going after that is to use the courts as a check against his abuses of power. You know, thinking broadly, there's certain things that courts may be able to stop and others where presumably that's much more difficult. One of the striking aspects of the Trump administration has just been the extent of victimizing of vulnerable groups, some of the dehumanizing rhetoric. Presumably those are things which courts can't really stop. We have freedom of speech and we don't want courts to be able to step in and say to an elected political leader, you can't say that. But when there's other things, for example, if the administration claimed that it has the right to do something, which according to the Constitution it doesn't, where we would hope that courts could play a larger role. So how do you think about sort of in what areas to pursue legal redress and in what area you might need to stand up for democratic institutions and norms in different ways? Well, it's certainly true that the the hardest thing to attack through the courts, and maybe you, it's almost impossibly difficult, are, are the things that the president says that are inconsistent with our democratic norms. There might be a way, and we've thought through ways, that, that you could do that in terms of the president's oath of office. He takes an oath to uphold the laws. He takes an oath to uphold our constitution. And when he says certain things that are inconsistent with that, those things are also inconsistent with his oath. So for example, when he calls the press the enemy of the people, that might not be something that's actionable on its own under, say, 
the First Amendment, but it certainly is something that is inconsistent with his oath of office. But I've really found it's it's actually very interesting to think in terms of the system that our founders set up, you know, how much they thought through it this way, how much they intended it this Mm -hmm. way. I'm not sure. But I think that there is a very, there's often a real link between the things that we do legally to keep the president from abusing his power and the people those abuses affect. Uh, One of the things our founders did seek to do to an extent, obviously not to the greatest extent that we would think of it now, but to an extent they sought to create a liberal democracy, a democracy in which the majority rules, but there's respect for minority rights. And one of the things that they set up principally to do that was our system of separation of powers, Hmm. which they explicitly said in the Federalist Papers was a system that was meant to keep any one person or institution in the government from getting too powerful and getting into a situation where you have tyranny. And if you look right now at one of the key ways in which the president is very obviously abusing his power, um, declaring this fake national emergency in order really to overturn the will of Congress on a matter that is within their exclusive authority. So talk us through this. What is it that's happened around the emergency declaration? Why do you think that that's one area in which we might be able to have legal redress, in which actually going in and filing a lawsuit may be able, hopefully, to stop the president? Sure. And let me just first say, the people against whom this falls most heavily is immigrants. Um, Immigrants who are residents, legal residents of the United States, immigrants who are coming here to seek asylum, immigrants who are coming here for whatever reason, that is a community that the president is effectively delegitimizing through this this abuse of power. But the, the way in which it works is we have the founders set up a system, our system of separation of powers, whereby it is Congress who is given the power to make laws. They're the body closest to the people. They're given the power to make laws and they're given the power to make decisions about how to spend money. And there has been a debate back and forth between this president and the Congress over how to address the situation at our border, how to address migration, how many immigrants should come in, under what circumstances, what should the rules be. As we know, the president has said from the very beginning that what he wants is a great wall at our border, and Congress has not seen fit to give him uh, the degree of wall that he wants. He ultimately decided that he could use declaring a national emergency as a way to get around the no he was getting from Congress. And what you have right there is an abuse of power that is both really overt and also very scary from the standpoint of our ability to maintain our democracy. So just to clarify, there's obviously all kinds of reasons why one might oppose funding a wall on the border. And I imagine most listeners to this podcast have many reasons to be opposed to that. But specifically, the concern about emergency powers is not that this is bad policy. It's not that we have a substantive disagreement here with Donald Trump. It's that if you are going to build a wall on the border, it is going to cost money and that money has to be appropriate in some kind of traditional constitutional way by a vote of Congress. And what Trump is trying to do with the emergency declaration is to say, 
actually, what's going on on the southern border is such an emergency that I should be able to just find the money myself without an active act of Congress. And then when Congress actually passed a bill saying, no, 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 we did not want you to do that, he vetoed that bill. So that essentially would potentially allow the president to preemptively spend money in whatever way he wants. And if Congress is not able to rebuke him with a two-thirds majority, he can spend that money. So that actually completely rejigs how our system of raising money and spending money works in the United States. Is that right? That's exactly right. And I think what the president has done here highlights that very thing that you're talking about. If you were to read the National Emergencies Act in the way that President Trump has read it here, which is essentially to say he can declare an emergency whenever he wants to, whenever he decides that there's a situation that warrants it, that kind of a reading of that law could be used to completely obliterate Congress's power to decide how to spend money. And one thing that's really important to understand about what happened here is that previous presidents have used this act to declare emergencies. No previous president has ever done so in a situation where Congress explicitly made a decision about how to act on a certain type of crisis, if you will, and then the president decided to overturn that. That has never happened before. So what would have happened before, for example, might be that there's a big storm, a hurricane or something like that. It destroys a lot of property and the president puts through an emergency declaration to both help fund some of the emergency response and perhaps to pay for some of the property damage. But what you're saying is different is like one, perhaps this is more debatable, but the nature of the emergency is more clear. It's a natural disaster and the response to it is something more straightforward than a building crisis at a border. But two, what you're saying is that in those circumstances, it was never the case that the president tried to get money from Congress and Congress said no. And then he said, oh, you know what, there's an emergency. That's exactly right. Previous situations were like, I mean, there have been many, but some key ones that you could think of when when President Obama was in office, there was a flu epidemic that went through the United States. The president at that time used the National Emergencies Act to dedicate funds in order to make sure that people across the country could get vaccines. President uh, Bush used the National Emergencies Act after the terrorist attacks of September 11th. In neither of those cases had Congress made a specific decision about how to spend money on those crises. And then the president came in and said, that's not how I want to do it. I'm going to declare an emergency to do it some other way. They use the act for the purpose that it was intended. And here what you have is just a straight up authoritarian power grab by Donald Trump. So what we have here is a theory of a case. What you're saying is that we do want to have emergency powers under certain very restricted circumstances. The administration is deliberately misreading that in order to justify something which could, in theory, enable a president to bypass Congress on most spending decisions. So this is a big constitutional problem. We want to step in. What does that mean? What kind of next step do you take? So the next step that you take and the step that we took was to file a lawsuit that says this is an abuse of the president's authority under both this particular statute and also our Constitution. And who do you sue in front of which court? What does that sort of look like concretely? 
So we sued the employees of the president who are charged with carrying out his orders. So in effect, we sued the government. We sued the government through its agents, the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of Homeland Security, all of the people who would be charged with carrying out what we are arguing is this unlawful order. The people on whose behalf we are suing, our clients are El Paso County, Texas, which is, of course, one of the largest cities on our border. And our uh, our other clients are the Border Network for Human Rights, which is a human rights organization that advocates on behalf of immigrant families who live along the border. And a, th- a third really important component of our lawsuit and really of this whole issue is it's it's not a partisan a purely partisan thing the way you would normally think of it it's not one of those things that well you know president trump is a republican and some democrat organization has filed a lawsuit against him what we have here is a lawsuit where our partners are former high-ranking officials in previous Republican administrations. One of our partners is Stuart Gerson, who is a former high-ranking Republican official in the Department of Justice, a well-known conservative legal thinker. We've also partnered with the Niskanen Center, which is a center-right organization. And the reason why we have this cross-section of Republicans and Democrats working together on this case is because it truly is an issue about our Constitution and about the separation of powers that should apply regardless of who's in charge. A wide swath of people in this country have come together to say this really is an unacceptable abuse of power. And in, and in a democracy, we have to band together to fight against that. The Emergency Powers Act seems like a relatively straightforward power grab. What about some more creative attempts to try and use the law in order to get a purchase on his attacks on independent institutions, on vulnerable minorities, or on the free press? I understand that you've teamed up with Penn, a free speech organization that helps protect writers who are at risk to sue the administration around some of its attacks on the free press. What is the theory of that case? How might the law be used in order to stand up for the free press in that way? So the theory of that case is, and we've seen this from really day one of this president's campaign and on into his administration, he does not accept the notion that our First Amendment protects and enshrines in our Constitution that we have freedom of speech in this country and that we have freedom of the press in this country and that those exist precisely for the purpose of allowing people to criticize and dissent against their government. That is one of the most fundamental components of a democracy. This president doesn't accept that. Uh, We have seen from the very beginning of his time in office him engaging in a pattern of using the tools of his office and the agencies that he oversees to direct them to punish members of the media who criticize him or who say things that he doesn't like. So, for example, uh, he threatened before he became president and after he assumed the office to intervene in the merger between CNN's parent company, Time Warner, and AT&T. And the reason for that is his animus towards CNN, which he has clearly expressed. He threatened to intervene in the merger. And in fact, 
the Justice Department that he oversees filed a lawsuit to stop that merger, even though the Justice Department has not intervened in that particular type of a merger in more than 40 years. Similarly, he has he dislikes the Washington Post. Uh, he feels that they don't cover him fairly. He criticizes them, calls them fake news and the enemy of the people frequently. And he fuses that with criticism of the Washington Post's owner, Jeff Bezos. And he has repeatedly threatened in conjunction with his statements of animosity toward the Washington Post to raise postal rates on Amazon. and and Which is owned by Jeff Bezos. Which is owned by Jeff Bezos. And a few months ago, he actually directed the Postmaster General to do that. So, so Pan America, as you identified as an organization of writers and journalists that's whose mission is to celebrate freedom of expression, they decided, along with us and our co-counsel, that this pattern of conduct violates the First Amendment. The president ha- has engaged in, in, in a scheme to threaten retaliation against the media and create this credible risk of threat that hangs over the heads of any journalist or reporter who would seek to criticize him. And the theory of our case is the First Amendment simply does not allow that. In a country where you have a First Amendment protecting freedom of speech, you cannot allow a situation where any journalist who seeks to criticize the president has to reasonably think to themselves that they might be retaliated against by the government if we do that. And what specific remedy are you hoping for here? Because the remedy in the Emergency Powers Act seems relatively obvious. It's for a court to step in and to say, no, actually, Mr. President, you're not allowed to spend this money on the war in this way unless you have an act of Congress authorizing it or whatever it is, right? What exactly would the remedy be in this case? I mean, can a court order Donald Trump no longer to make threats on Twitter? What, what would this look like? A court can't order the president to stop talking. But what it can do is the court has the ability, really the fundamental ability. This was one of the first Supreme Court cases that was ever decided. The court has the ability to say what the law is. And that's actually a very important power in our system of separation of powers. So one thing that the court can do here and what it, it actually did in the Twitter case that was filed in the in the Southern District of New York a few months ago is the court can declare that that the president of the United States violates the First Amendment when he threatens government retaliation against speech. So not just simply when he says something that is obnoxious or nefarious or that violates his oath, not just the things that he says generally, but when he says things that are credible threats of retaliation or when he does things that constitute directing government agencies to retaliate against the press, that violates the First Amendment. That is unconstitutional. A court could simply say that. And by doing so, really create a very powerful tool that the people the president orders to carry out his unlawful commands have in their back pocket as a way of resisting doing that. You know, we've seen in recent reporting that the president is getting more and more overt in ordering his employees to violate the law. And it seems as though some of them have been able to stand up and resist him. But as a former civil servant myself, I can tell you that a declaration from a court saying that this 
type this type of directive is unconstitutional would be a very powerful tool in the hands of people who are trying to uphold their own oaths not to carry out unlawful orders. So tell me about that. In what capacity were you a civil servant and how, if you had seen a decision by a federal district court saying something that the president has just asked you to do is illegal, might that have impacted your behavior and the behavior of your colleagues around you? So thankfully, in the 19 years that I was a civil servant, no one ever gave me an order that I believed would violate the Constitution. But my position was I was an attorney in the Department of Justice for 19 years. I started as a line attorney in the civil division. I went over to the civil rights division and became a prosecutor prosecuting police misconduct cases and hate crimes cases. And then by the end of my time there, for about the last seven years, I was actually a supervisor. My, my, my title was deputy chief. But in the entire time that I was in the department, and I feel that my colleagues in the civil service very much felt the same way, we always understood that we were in a privileged position where we had the opportunity to take an oath to uphold our constitution and our laws. And that is a very weighty thing for any civil servant. It's particularly so, I think, for those of us who had the honor to work in the Department of Justice. And we were always on guard to protect the Constitution. It was our job to serve whatever administration was in charge, and I worked in four different ones. And it was never our role to resist them in carrying out the agenda that the people elected them to carry out. But it was always our duty to make sure that the law was always being followed mm -hmm. and that we were doing things based on what the law said and not what, while, what politics said. And we all would talk amongst ourselves about what it would be like if we ever actually received an order from someone to do something that we felt was unlawful. And we all talked about how hard it would be to have to stand up and resist that even by, if necessary, resigning from our positions, which affects our livelihoods. So to be clear, what should you do in such a situation? So on the one hand, you are responsible to the leadership of the institution and you're supposed to act according to the will rather than to your own whim. That's part of how bureaucracy is democratically accountable and responsive. But on the other hand, you have taken an oath to uphold the Constitution. And the oath is not, I will follow whatever the president does. The oath is, you may know it off by heart, I don't, to act in accordance with the Constitution in everything you do. So I suppose you're supposed to refuse in those circumstances to follow an order that you know to be illegal, aren't you? So is the importance of having a court declare that something is illegal that you don't have to second guess? That it's not just you saying, hey, in my opinion, this is unconstitutional. And then your boss can say, well, who are you to have an opinion? Because now you can say, well, according to judge so-and-so, this is unconstitutional. So therefore, it would violate my oath to follow this. I think you've got it exactly right. I think any time you can walk into someone who you feel is telling you to do something wrong, not just with your own opinion that it's wrong, but with a piece of paper from a court that says this specific thing that you're telling me to do violates the Constitution, I think that is a hugely powerful tool for the people who are in the role of a civil servant. And that's why I think it's so important that the courts make sure that they don't take a step back from 
overseeing what this administration is doing. Now really is the time, if ever there was a time, for the courts to be very mindful of their duty to say what the law is, because it is important for the other people in our constitutional system to be able to act in the way that they're supposed to act, to have that endorsement from our courts about what is and isn't legal. I'm struck by a kind of paradox in what we've been talking about, which is that, you know, I just traveled through Poland and Hungary and countries like that, and nobody there talks about suing the government because, frankly, it's not worth it. (laughs) The government has moved, especially in Hungary, so quickly to dominate the courts, to have their own loyalists in all of those decisions. And there is so much political conformity among the state bureaucracy that a lot of the things we've just been talking about just wouldn't happen. You can sue the government in front of a court. I mean, they'll accept your lawsuit and then they'll dismiss it, even if it should be right on the merits. I don't think that there are that many civil servants left, alas, in Hungary at least, who will say, oh, hang on a second, if this is unconstitutional, perhaps I shouldn't do it or I should resign. The most important positions, at least, have been filled with political lawless. Now, In the United States, we're in a system where the courts still are independent. We still have the ability to achieve change through some of those lawsuits. But as a result, it can be easy for quietists to say, well, all of these concerns are ridiculous. Clearly, we have a free press. Clearly, we have independent courts. So why are you all even worried? So it seems like the only way to defend against a populist expanding his or her power is at the early stages when courts are still independent. Independent, when there is still a free press, when civil servants still try to uphold the constitutional duty. But those are precisely the moments when it's tempting to say, well, look, there's independent courts, there's a free press. Why are you even worried? I think that's right. And I think especially since I have been with Protect Democracy and we've had the benefit of so many great advisors who study authoritarianism around the world and who study the history of the rise of authoritarianism in Europe and its reemergence now, uh, it's, it's important to understand that the United States does not exist in a vacuum outside of all of these other forces. I was struck when I read uh, On Tyranny by you know, Timothy Snyder, that one of the things that he noted in his preface is it's really important to understand that we may think America is special, but we are not immune from any of the things that has happened in these other places that were so disastrous. But I think what you say is also still very true. That is that we do have this robust legal system that not only is robust on its own terms, but that that Americans have internalized to understand as a tool that we as citizens have in order to stand up against the government when we think it's doing something wrong, that we don't just have to acquiesce in a descent of our democracy into authoritarianism. But I think the key thing to understand in linking those two things is First of all, to be grateful that citizens have acted to make our courts as strong as they are and to achieve the rights through those courts that they have. You know, everything that we've got in this country proceeds from our founding principles, but we have the rights that we have because citizens went out and said, you know what? 
that principle should apply to me the same way that it applied to the wealthy white men who founded this country. That's how we got cases like Brown versus Board of Education and expanded the rights that we have in this country, the voting rights cases, all of those things. Um, We need to be grateful that we have these courts, but we also need to be mindful that we could lose our rights at any time. And we need to take we need to exercise the benefit of the system that we do have and the strengths that it does still maintain that do, I think, distinguish us from the European countries that you're talking about and make sure that now more than ever, we both use those institutions and we also safeguard them from the efforts that this president is making to erode and politicize them. Christy, thank you so much for coming on Trumpcast. Thank you for having me. That's our show for today. Say hello to us on Twitter and let us know what you think. I'm at Yasha Monk, Y-A-S-C-H-A underscore M-O-U-N-K, and you can find the show at Real Trumpcast. Before you go, I have one more request. Sign up for Slate Plus. It's only $35 for the first year, and it gets you the full roster of Slate podcasts. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan. Johnny DiDomenico is our host of Donald J. Trump. You can find him on Twitter at Johnny, that's with an H, J-O-H-N-N-Y, D23. I'm Yasha Monk. Thanks again for listening to Trumpcast.